All right, well, let's uh, dive into Job. And I don't know if I'll use the board or not. We'll see what happens. Uh, I have a hard time thinking without using a board. So Sunday morning is a very different prep thing than, than this. So we'll see what happens. But either way, Job. So what we're going to do. If you need a hand or a scribe. I'll just get somebody to go up there and, and write gibberish to make me feel like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm putting it up there. Somebody misspelled this for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> J-E-B, Jeb. <laughs> All right, so what I want to do, um, I think everybody was here. You, know, you weren't here last week. So last week we, we did 7 or 8 through 19, and I was trying to emphasize a particular progression in Job. Um, we ended up going off trail, talking about some interesting questions that related to this, and then we kind of really rushed through the text to make the point. And um, really just in retrospect, thinking about it, I decided you know, to approach the same passage, and let's just take a different strategy for walking through it. And so it's technically the same content, but some of the, the nuances of the conversations happening in this passage are just really really interesting they're really worth thinking about and fleshing out and so I decided you know what let's just I was really trying to do a very high flyover of Job and I think for some of this we're still not going to go verse by verse but we're just going to get a lot more localized in what's going on and kind of walk through the narrative so the structure of tonight's um the, well, the layout we're going to follow is just the, out, the outline of the book so we're going to start back at the beginning. We'll work through that first section pretty quickly because you remember that story, I think, at this point. But then we're going to get into the dialogues with the friends and um, try to unpack this a little bit more clearly. So anyway, let's uh, start. Job, the main character of Job is Job. Job very good. Um, so but if you got that one wrong, we're just going to quit. So, so Job is the main character. And what is the basic scenario that happens in chapter one? He loses everything. Why? Why does he lose everything? God uh, allows Satan to, to test him. And whose idea was this? God's it's God's idea. So God puts Job forward and says, look at how faithful this guy is. And he's having this conversation directly with Satan. It's not just, look at how faithful Job is in general, and Satan overhears. But Satan comes up and God's like, hey, Satan, look at Job. Look at how faithful that guy is. And so because of that um, first scene there, our God presents, should have an S on that, God presents Job's faithfulness to be tested by Satan. Of course, in that first test, what does Job lose? Ten children, seven boys, three girls, loses ten, ten children, loses all of his material possessions. So... His servants save one, no, except three. three. Three servants actually survived, and his wife, and they only survived for what, what reason? To tell him. To tell him, but to be the bearer of yeah, bad, bad news. news. So he loses, he's going to lose those servants too, though, because he's lost his ability to, to take care of them. He is no longer a wealthy man. He might technically own land, um, but he doesn't have the means to work it. Um, but when all that happens, everything's taken away except for his wife and those three servants. And how does Job verbally respond? What's he say? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed, Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in terms of the set, the, the test that has been set up, look at how faithful Job is. Satan says, yeah, he's only faithful because you put this huge hedge around him. 
God says, all right, well, let's shrink the hedge. You can do anything you want. Just don't touch his body. And so they do that. And then Job just proves to be completely steadfast. That's the first blank there. That's the setting of chapter one. So in spite of the test, Job proves to be steadfast. And at this point, his attitude's even good. But he's, he's loyal to the Lord. He still blesses the Lord. Satan specifically said Job would curse him. But instead of cursing the Lord, the opposite in Hebrew of cursing is, of course, blessing. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. All right, so scene two, chapter two. Same scenario. The first paragraph is almost verbatim the same as the scenario in the first path. One exception is that when God presents Job to Satan this time, he says, basically, Job's still faithful, even though you got me to do this stuff to him without cause. So, again, reinforcing, and we should have said this in the first scene, reinforcing this idea that Job did not do something that caused these events to happen. That's one of the most important elements of the book. This is not Job's fault. From God, out of his own mouth, I did this to Job without cause. From Job's perspective, there is cause, and the cause was what? Well, well, okay. Yeah, okay, so yeah. So, so we could say Satan on one side, but really it's to demonstrate God's character and his methods on the other side. So there's the sense in which the cause of Job's suffering is God's reputation or God's glory could, could be what we say is, is at stake, at least in the way it's presented. I mean, it's not like God is literally going to have a chance of felling this this battle with Satan. But that's the idea of, of the way the text is presented. So in round two, um, God doesn't remove the hedge. He just shrinks the hedge even further down. And a hedge is just the, the lingo Job uses for God's circle of protection. And he shrinks the circle down to what? You can't kill him. Just can't kill him. So basically Job is immortal now, um, in a sense. But Job, or Satan can do anything to Job other than kill him. Now, in one sense, that's like, okay, good. But what's the bad sense of that? No matter, no matter how bad it gets, Job can't die. So, you know, at first, Job, all this, so he loses his health, sick, boils, pain. He's scraping dead skin off. What was it? A pot shard. He's scratching parts of his body off just because it hurts. It's itchy. It's irritated. Head to toe, whole body. He's in agony. And his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? And after saying, no, that's a foolish statement, then what's Job respond with um, to his wife but talking about God? Is it, shall we receive good and not evil? Exactly. So the first statement is, blessed, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's chapter 1. In round 2, it's the same idea. But it's a little more explicit in that shall we receive good from the Lord, but not evil? Well, what's the implication there? Well, what should you do if the Lord's giving you good and then the Lord gives you evil? What should you do? Bless him. You should, you should trust him with it. But do you get it? Might that make sense? You don't even have to like it. Job's not going to like this at all. But he, the word I'm going to use here in that next blank is Job remains loyal. It's so loyal to God. It's, man, not a great illustration, but you can kick a dog and it still be loyal to you. 
You know, it's not that you should. I'm not encouraging you to kick a dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're getting technical when we say that, though. Like, I was hoping we could get into suicide or something. But could he kill himself? I'm basing that on what his wife said. And he didn't. Right, he didn't take the bait. Yeah, yeah he didn't do it before. Right, right. That's a good, I think a good thought experiment. Could he? I think in the case of the story of Job, that would be an act of unfaithfulness. And so it, like, there's a sense in which God would lose the argument with Satan if Job did that. Yeah. Um, so I don't think in this narrative that's an option on the table. Well, he wouldn't have much faith if he did. Right, exactly. So the faithfulness of Job then is tied to not just obeying God, but obeying God even when he doesn't like what God is doing. Like the... I mean, it's like, okay, go back to the dog. You can kick a dog, you know, and it will apologize to you for being kicked. You know what I'm talking about? It's total, almost what you might call blind devotion. And there's a sense in which that's kind of what Job is modeling here. Well, the Lord gives good things, the Lord gives bad things. I'm going to be loyal to the Lord, whatever that is. But that's the easy, that's the church answer. It's not the wrong answer. But there's not a lot of... Uh, grief yet in that answer but that's where scene two ends of course the friends show up and and all good things in chapter two basically the friends don't speak so so nothing goes wrong um, but chapter three is uh we, we could call it scene three i called it uh job's lament in the outline but it's like the third scene and that whole chapter is job speaking and the first thing he says or the first paragraph is really the summary of the whole thing and it's just job curses the day of his birth i had been better if i hadn't been born so it's not positive he's not happy he's we wouldn't say he's in a great emotional state but he is technically he's still completely loyal to yahweh he's just mad at him so if yahweh showed up and said job go do blank would job do it still yes he might be mad at god but God is still God. He's still loyal to God. And he's going to obey God, even if he's mad at him. And he, he's he's kind of mad at God right now. He gets legitimately mad at God as we progress through this. But at no point, and this is a significant thing for Job, at no point does he have disloyalty to the Lord. Now that's going to be interestingly clear in one of the dialogues as we go forward. All right, so that's, that's the limit. He curses his birth. Now... The pattern of the book is pretty consistent from this point forward. There's three three friends. And I tried to outline this in such a way that you could see it. There's going to be three cycles of dialogue. And the way that will work, Eliphaz will speak. Job will speak. Bildad will speak. Job will speak. Zophar will speak. Job will speak. So each it's like each guy is going to take a stab at Job. And then Job is going to defend himself. The cycle happens two and a half times. The third cycle, Job kind of loses it on Bildad right in the middle and goes like eight chapters of defending himself. And then we get that guy, we'll have to work that out in the next few weeks. Elihu or Elihu, however you say his name, shows up and that's a whole different scenario. But we're not there yet, so let's just deal with the cycle. So we summarized over the last few weeks, basically all of these friends, comforters, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are saying the same thing. And what's that message? You did something. You did something. 
Now they're going to come up with clever ways to say it, but it's really, it's just that message in some way. Now what I've done in the outline here is try to summarize the particular way that they're saying it. So they're all going to say it in some way. And so Eliphaz goes first. This is chapter four. And his statement is basically summarized as, well, when did the innocent suffer? And that's, that's his general question. God doesn't punish the innocent. So anytime you got somebody that's innocent, they're not going to suffer. Consequently, if someone's suffering, what does that mean? They're guilty because, and here's the root principle, you reap what you sow, period. Now, of course, just like with this guy, every time a friend speaks, it's going to be mostly true. It's just not quite true the way it's presented. Well, do you reap what you sow? Well, technically, that's a quotation from Galatians 6 2. You reap what you sow. But even in that passage, that's not presented in the way Eliphaz presents it. It's a generalized principle of you reap what you sow. And what you reap what you sow is not a prosperity gospel in the New Testament. It's a you reap good things. or sorry, you sow good things, you reap good things. Those good things might not be health and wealth and good relationships. They're peace, love, and joy, and Jesus. Not necessarily the things Eliphaz is talking about. But that's the principle. You reap what you sow. Therefore, Job, you're reaping suffering. You sowed sin. That's his basic statement. So Job's response is Job has done nothing to deserve this. He spends two chapters um, coming up with, you know, we could call clever ways of saying not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong here. I'm clear. Is there injustice on my tongue? You see in chapter 6, verse 30. Um, cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? He's kind of this, if I did something wrong, then what was it? I don't know what it was. You don't know what it was because you'd tell me if you did, and you don't. So nobody knows what it was. What's that lead us all to believe? <laughs> but that's not what they're going to hear. But that's how Job's logic is working. I don't know what I did wrong. You guys don't know what I did wrong. Clearly, that means I didn't do something wrong. Now, we know we have the advantage of the backstory. We know Job didn't do anything wrong. But you can see why there's doubt, because their logic is consistent. You're suffering because there's sin. Well, why is there suffering in the world in a general sense? Because of sin, the curse. So there is that principle in Scripture. They're just misapplying it. So that was round one. Now, we did that two weeks ago. And then we picked up technically last week in chapter 8 with Bildad. So this is the first time Bildad has spoken. And I want to look down at verse 6 in chapter 8. This will give you a good kind of picture of what he's talking about. It says, If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. And he just creates this principle all the way through. If you do good things, God will do good things to you, which, of course, is your typical tithing message. Uh, You can't outgive God. Open up the store, you know, test me and see. Now, he's taking that principle, making it universal and applying it to everything. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what the situation is. If you do something good, God will always do something good in return. Well, I mean, just, just back up for a second. How well does that mesh with your life experience? There's uh, 
the, the common expression, no good deed goes unpunished, yep. right? That's a whole, there's a song about that in Broadway, Wicked. I know that Broadway? I love that song. Okay, doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about here. But like, that's the principle. Like we, it's like you do something good. It's like almost the reverse of that. Now that's a cynical outlook on life. It is, but it's just because there's so many scenarios where we do see you do something good. That does not necessarily pan out in the end, but this is exactly what Bildad is trying to argue. God rewards his faithful with good things. Maybe we could add to that every time. Guaranteed mathematical formula. You do good things. God will bless you with good things, tangible things. So Job answers in chapter 9, and his answer here is very interesting. He's basically trying to convince them that it is God who is the one who is doing this, which is weird because they are saying that. But Job is saying, God has done this to me, not myself. Need to hear the difference? So technically everyone in the conversation is saying God is doing this. Job is just saying, no, only God is doing this. I didn't cause it. God is the one who did this. Now read chapter 9, read verse 23. It says, when disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Now, what's, what's that saying? When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Yeah. Who's he talking about? seem to be talking about God. Yeah, and back up one verse. I mean, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Verse 24, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Who's he saying does this? He's saying God does this. He's giving absolute attribution to God. So... Now, he, now, Job's operating, we have a tendency to filter everything through a soteriological gospel lens. Who is righteous? Well, technically, no, no not, not one. None, no, not one. But even in real life, we can recognize that there are different levels of evil. We don't. None of us put Adolf Hitler in the same category as ourselves. We recognize that there's, there's a wickedness that ought to be destroyed. The Bible universally and... And uh, agrees with and mandates capital punishment. So there, there are people who should be ended, but it doesn't make that claim universally across all people, even though they're sinful. We're operating more in that kind of worldview with, with this passage. So there are innocent in that sense. So you have an oppressor. You would say the Jews were innocent in the Holocaust, even though technically I could point at any Jew and say guilty before God. Yeah, yeah. So, but in. in kind of a relative worldview sort of situation. No, the Jews are the innocent party in that scenario. A woman gets raped. You don't look at her and say, well, you're a sinner. You deserved it. You better not. You better not ever say anything like that. Now, you could, from a high-level theological standpoint, say, well, nothing could happen to us greater than what we deserved. But that's not what we're talking about in those scenarios. The person who did this wrong is the greater evil in that scenario. And from this vantage point... God, he, he's mad at God because God's treating them the same. You're killing the wicked, you're killing the good. Like, this doesn't make sense to him, or he doesn't like it anyway. 
but his total attribution to God. Now, a further issue, so go back to the beginning of his reply in chapter 9, verse 2. It says, truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So let's just say God is trying to do something to you. Can you stop him? No. What if you don't like it? No. That just doesn't matter. He's good. You're not in the same category. Um, in fact, if you make a scale, you can't both be on it at the same time. Like He is sovereign. We aren't in any sense compared to him. And if he wants to destroy you, and he's going to make a lot of claims like this throughout the book. If God is trying to destroy you, what's going to happen? You're going to be destroyed. There, there's nothing you can do. So if you disagree with his decision, can you march up to heaven, kick the door in and say, I demand an audience? No. No. I mean, hypothetically, if you could literally go to his throne room and do that, what, what, what do you visualize happening there? I see Uzzah, you know, yeah, touching yeah, the yeah, ark. Yeah, yeah. I see the earth opening up and swallowing the, the sons, sons of, of Korah. Korah. Yeah. You know, I, I see I see the plague breaking out among the people and the fiery serpents biting everyone. There's a lot of examples of a lower level wrath pouring out. I can't imagine going to the throne. In your face. In your face, like pointing in God's finger. The fury that could be unleashed. And that's, the, and that's all Job is calling out here. So even, it wouldn't matter. Like, you cannot stand before the Almighty. Why would, and then he asks this question. This is where he transitions to. Why would God make a man only to ruin him in darkness? So that's how the chapter ends. It's this very depressing scenario. He in no way denies that God's doing this and can do this. There's nothing you can do about it. But then think about that from his shoes. If there's nothing he can do about it, then can he fix this scenario? Not at all. Does he have any hope of figuring out a way around? No. So it ends up, that whole dialogue ends up then for Job being very depressing. And so just hear the last phrase, or the last few phrases. He says, uh, let's see, to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any other, where light is a thick darkness. So what's the key phrase there? Darkness. So not a happy thought that God is totally sovereign, but he still completely yields to the idea that God is totally sovereign. So you following so far with what Job's experiencing. Let's get to Zophar. All right, so this is kind of like uh, in The Lord of the Rings when Bilbo says, I like... I like half of you half as well as you no, can you say it James I yeah, know you were saying so, say uh, so yeah, you messed me up already but I like half of you twice uh, twice as much as you deserve as another something like that basically I like you more than you deserve is what he's saying to all of them but it's much more clever than that yeah, now I'm totally lost. Yeah, it's so yeah. clever when you say it right. Yeah, yeah, right before he puts the ring on. It's his 11th you? birthday. Yeah, it's his yeah. 11th birthday. Okay, anyway, there's a similar sort of statement. I feel like I always feel like I have to read this like three or four times to hear it. But like once you hear it, you hear it. It's the second half of verse 6. It says, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. One says, Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. 
Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. So God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. He holds back with mercy. Yeah, mercy. All right, so I already used your translation. Like, here's your, your big blob. Well, he's only punishing you for this part of it. So what's uh, what's Zophar saying about Job? Ooh, look at look at how bad you're being punished. You must have really screwed up. What's getting punished from the tip of your yeah, in other words, Job, you're about to get it bad. You deserve way worse than what has happened to you. Imagine walking up to someone who just lost their ten children and saying, you better be thankful that was all it was. Like, in what worldview could that possibly be a useful thing to say? But this is, the whole chapter is, Job... You deserve more punishment than you have received. You, you, it should have been worse. And then he ends with this law, like in verse 14. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And he just, half the chapter is like, Job, please, please just repent. Stop doing this sin. Of course, what sin specifically is so far calling out? No specific sin. Because he has no idea. Neither does Job. So there's nothing of Job to repent of. In this case, because nobody knows what he needs to repent of. Nobody can name the sin. So that's, let's see, that was, where are we at in that? I feel like this was clear, but as I'm trying to read from it, it doesn't feel clear at all. You follow the, the way the descriptions are done? So Eliphaz response, Bildad response, so far response. You follow my outline, or is that just confusing? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, I edited this like eight different ways on my, my laptop before I printed, so we'll just see what happens. All right, so you deserve more punishment than, or, yeah, deserves more punishment than he received. Now Job's response. So this will span chapters 12 through 14. Longer response than we've had in the other. So three chapters worth of response. And Job starts out um, basically instead of by giving his usual preachy response, instead he, he's a little more antagonistic and attacking them. He, in a very clever way, says, uh, you know sarcastic well, I guess all the wisdom of the people is in you you know when you die all the world's wisdom will be gone um, he doesn't mean any of that <laughs> you know that's sarcasm but then he makes a really interesting statement in verse 5 so see see what he says here I'm sorry chapter 12 so Job replies and let's look at um, chapter 12 verse 5 and Okay, part of the reason we're jumping through this, to be clear, is this is written in poetic form as opposed to prose. And so in Hebrew poetry, you say the same thing like 12 different ways, and that's your poem. <laughs> and so we're making one point, and Job will say you know, 18 lines to say the one or three three ideas total. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, and I might understand one of those well, you know, and that's the benefit of Hebrew poetry is like, what, what, what? Oh, okay, I can work with that one. And that's what the others meant, even though, even though you can't see it. Yeah, yeah. So that's how mine is. I underlined the one that made sense, <laughs> you know. Um, but so it, it might be what makes sense to me might not be the one that made sense to you, that, if, that makes, if that makes sense. I'm saying sense too many times. All right, but verse 5 says, In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt... For misfortune, it is ready for those whose feet slip. 
think hard about what he said there. And the thought of the one who is at ease. So what person is this? One who is at ease. No worries. So, so they have no worries, but what are we saying about them? This is, if you have no worries in life, yeah, you're at ease. Right, well, you're in a safe, secure sort of position. This is where Job was weeks ago. He didn't have worries. He's, he's, I mean, he's got, everybody has worries. There's different kinds of worries, though. And he doesn't have this. So the person who's at ease, the person who's making the ends meet every month, maybe has a bit of a nest egg, you know, has an emergency fund, life's, you know, good, pretty good health, family's pretty secure, car's paid for. Worries are different in that category than paycheck to paycheck, you know, miss one payment, everything backs up, all falls apart. Those are two different categories. So he's saying, in the one who's at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. What's he saying the attitude of the one who's at ease is? It's good for those who have problems. Yeah, so that's exactly It's not just the misfortune itself. It's the person who has misfortune. It's like, especially in American culture, it's funny that they're saying this 4,000 years ago. Because we're, we're, we say this more, it's capitalism. And, and, and I'm pro-capitalism. <laughs> Just hear that before, before I critique capitalism. One inherent flaw in capitalism, and you say flaw, it's more of a, one of the ways sin manifests in capitalism. Let me be more nuanced in my, my conversation. Is since success is possible, Failure is your fault. Failure is an option. But you follow what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. if the option of success is on the table, that means if you're at the bottom of the social ladder, it's okay to blame you for it. Because you got there on your own. Now, that's a very narrow, like there, there's elements of truth in that. But that's a little oversimplification. I mean, you get like, your upbringing does have a lot to do with where you start. Your social mobility is affected by a lot of variables. Now, you're more socially mobile in our country than in any country that's ever existed, without question. But that's kind of what he's getting at here. So that means in, in our setting, and definitely in his setting, if you're doing well and someone's doing poorly, you see them, there's a little bit of, we might call it pride, a little bit of um, self-confidence, like, well, I did it right, he did it wrong. Does that make sense what he's saying? Now, Job is going to make a claim um, in, the, in the next chapter. Well, no, it's the next chapter. It's just the same narrative for him. Um, so that's the foundation idea. Is So for those who are at ease, you look at the guy suffering, and that's just a built-in, you set your life up wrong. You haven't done this right. You know, like and We do that especially in financial scenarios. And... and, and I do it all the time when someone comes and, of course, extra variables. They, they, people come to the church all the time asking for a handout, and they give me this bogus story. That doesn't make any sense. And I, I do it, so I have to check my heart. It's like, am I, am I not giving because I think they're using, or am I not giving because I don't like them? Does that make sense? And those aren't the same thing. I, and a lot of those people, yeah, I shouldn't give them anything, especially money. Because I do know that the reason they're lying to me is because they'll do whatever they have to to get get more money to pay for their addiction. But at the same time, I also harbor a lot of frustration 
with that. And that doesn't need to be the reason I'm not giving. Those are very different things. But that's what Job's highlighting in his friends. Do you see that happening in his friends? They're looking at Job and there's this, well, Job, clearly you've done something wrong. So what should the friends have done in this scenario instead of making claims like that? In, in a way, so in a way, they've kind of taken sides. Okay. You know, or, or Job, you know, you, I mean, we've made mistakes, and we're not getting what you, you've got. We know what we've done. We have no idea what you've done, but it's got to be a lot worse than what we've done. Yeah, they've dug a chasm between oh, yeah. them. Yeah. Now, what should a good friend, a good comforter, have done when their friend lost everything? Console. Console, for one, provide. Hey, let, you need to come live in my house, Joe. Let's uh, we, let, let's let's redeem you somehow. Let's yeah. let me get, help you get your back on your feet. And instead, what are the friends doing? Keep Finger pointing. Fire this, your, this is your fault, Joe. You've done something wrong. Creates a haughty worldview, haughty position. Everything about this is contrary to even the Old Testament law. How's the Old Testament law summarized? The two greatest commandments: love God, and then what? Your neighbors are love your neighbor. <laughs> Technically, they're not doing either very well, um, but they're only even trying to do the first one. They're not doing the second one at all. So that that's what Job is going to be saying, but uh, see how he... Actually, let's just start in chapter 13. Let's read the first several verses there. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. So really what he's saying there is, I don't want to argue my case with you. I want to argue my case with God. Now, he does want to argue his case with God. He, he, he just feels like a, a wrong has been done to him. And in a real sense, it has. But he wants to argue that with God. But as for you, verse 4, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for him? Now, what's Job accusing them of right there? Of exactly what you say he has been So you're speaking falsely about God. So they're speaking in the position of prophet. Right? They've come to Job. And they're condemning him from this, you know, prophet sort of position. And now Job is saying, you're actually making yourself out to be false prophets. You're not speaking for God. And then see the word he uses, at least in my translation. Will you show partiality toward him or really with, with him in view? Will you plead the case of God? Then jump down to 10. He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Well, what's partiality? We use that word in the book of James for sure. Favoritism. Well, in the book of James, anyway, how was that favoritism explained? Take the rich and the poor. Take the rich guy, put him in the special seat, the poor guy in the other seat. We're told God shows no partiality. He doesn't care what your standing is. That's you know, unmerited favor is the idea of grace. You don't, you don't get anything in that regard. But what's Job saying they're doing? They're judging him. It's really... That's, you're showing partiality here. You're saying you're this righteous elite, 
And you know God's will. You know God's heart. And Job's saying, I have no idea what God's will is, but I know God is doing this, and I trust him. So even though they're in the position of defending God, Job is actually the only one in the position on God's team. That's kind of weird if you think about it. He's the one in the scenario mad at God, but he's the one in the scenario who's on God's side. And there's reason to be mad. And reason to be mad. The friends have no reason whatsoever, and yet they're really not defending God. Who are they actually defending? Well, but, and by taking the, the shots at Job, what, what are they doing to themselves? themselves. Yeah, exactly. They're elevating themselves. That is really all that is happening. So to summarize Job's response. So he's saying the friends despise Job because they don't trust God's hand in suffering. There's a way in which they can't follow a God who would do this to Job. So they have to rewrite their worldview or have a worldview where God wouldn't do that. You ever heard somebody say, well, I wouldn't serve a God who would do blank. Well, my do or my God doesn't. It's like, if he's God, you serve him regardless of what he does, because he's God. It's to our benefit that our God is good, and he doesn't do those things. But we serve him because he's God. That's where the loyalty piece comes in, and that's what Job's got. Job would serve God even if God was evil, because he's God. He's not. That's a hypothetical scenario. But, like, I'm saying he's totally, he's that loyal. He, even when he doesn't understand, he's just going to serve the Lord. So if you continue to speak falsely against God, it will not go well for you. Summarizes chapter 13. And though God slays Job, which is, uh, for me, it's the next page, verse 15, um, he will hope in him. And then Job longs for the day he would be redeemed. So he's got this idea of, I really wish God would show up. And just write this. Well, I mean, you know how the book ends. What does God do in the end? He shows up, he, he shows up and writes everything. Yeah. He does. Not the, way Job Not the way Job wants. And I always was bothered, you know, when preachers made it sound like, man, Job got everything back. He didn't. The ten children are dead. They're, they're still dead. He got more children. But it's not those children. Like, he, he's on the other side of this. But it's not like a, an undo button. Having a control Z on your computer, you know. It's, he's rewarded. He, he is rewarded in a localized way, but really what it is that he's rewarded with is vindication. Because in the end, Job, Job is the one elevated as on God's side, which is technically the definition of justification, is God sides with you, versus the friends are the ones God sides against. And Job has to pray for them, for their sin to be removed. All right, but that's, okay, let's see, where are we? So he's longing for that day of redemption. Now we enter the second cycle. So you can see Job, he, he does get progressively more angry as we go, but he's not getting any less loyal. He's just getting frustrated the more he thinks about it. All right, so picking up in verse, or chapter 15, we restart the cycle. Now we are on Eliphaz, and he it does an interesting play on words. He basically says, well, if someone was wicked, then it would look exactly like you. <laughs> like, just describe Job's life. You know, if a wicked person was wicked and God was good, this is what would happen. And, huh, I just described you, Job. 
it's just a kind of haughty way to say that. Um, he said, your own mouth condemns you. He's a man who drinks injustice like water. He, he, he goes through a lot of uh, very cleverly written ways. Again, they're not really saying anything. Job's your fault. All right, so let's see Job's response. <laughs> well, first of all, just verse 2 of chapter 16. I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Now, what's our modern expression instead of windy words? Hot air. Full of hot air. Now, jump down to the end of chapter 16, and I want you to see this uh, statement Job's making. O earth, cover not my blood. This is verse 18, 16, 18. And let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Well, who is that? It's God. As Paul says in in Galatians, as God is my witness. Of course, why would you say that? Who who knows? God God knows. My, My witness is in heaven. The one who knows is in heaven. He knows I've been telling the truth. Um, so let's fill in the next one. So under Job, did we do Eliphaz, the wicked always suffer just like Job has suffered. And then Job's response, God is my witness that I have been telling the truth. But 17 verse one, my spirit is broken and my days are extinct. So remember in chapter 13, he said, uh, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Did we fill in that blank? I feel like we skipped something. No, that, that's next. Okay, no, that, not the one I thought of. The, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. But then jump over to 17, verse 13. If I hope for Sheol as my house, what does it mean to hope for Sheol as your house? You want to die. Don't you want to die. Because Sheol is the Old Testament word in the general sense for just in the ground. It can have positive or mostly negative connotations. But a lot of times it's just used generically. It just means you're in the ground. So if I'm hoping for Sheol as my house, in other words, I'm just ready to die. If I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father and to the worm, my mother, my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Well, where's my hope if I end up in Sheol? What's he say? I don't, know. I don't have hope if that's all there is. I, he already said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. But if I'm just headed to Sheol, and God just pours out evil on my life and suffering, and I take that to the grave, I guess I'm taking that hope with me. It, In other words... It dies too. Now, that's not a positive note to end on at all. And of course, it's, it's not where he's going to finally end, but it is where he's at in chapter 17. So then Bildad speaks up. So my what goes down the field? Hope. Oh, hope. sorry. Hope. Yes. Yeah. Hope well, goes, to, but my spirit is broken and my hope goes down to Sheol. So again, just emphasizing he's faithful to the Lord. But he's questioning stuff. That doesn't, his, he's realizing hope doesn't make sense. What does it mean to hope in the Lord if he's just going to end up dead? You know I mean? there, there's kind of a hmm, question mark. That's why it's technically a question. 
and the wording in my translation it's like well where's well, where's hope yeah what kind of hope is that it's like if I'm just, just I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life and I'll just put a happy face on it so in one of my Russian colleagues we, I don't know where we were discussing something but I used the phrase hope springs eternal okay now this the Russians say it different he said we have something similar he said we say hope dies last okay and that's kind of what more along the lines of this yeah now he's saying it in a pessimistic sense here yeah yeah Yeah. and that's when 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 hope's dead it's all it's over over. yeah it's over over. the fat lady is singing or has finished her song right that's right (laughs) (laughs) and there's no ovation ovation we're just just dead okay so bildad speaks up if you notice bildad never has a long answer he's always like real quick he he never has anything new to say um but his answer is also pretty straightforward and my summary there is uh the person who doesn't know god these things are going to happen he'll lose his possessions his family and his skin interesting choice of words and eventually he'll lose his life well what did bill dad just do he just described job's scenario he lost his possessions he lost his family he lost his skin Really? Like, he, had, he made it super explicit who he was talking about. And then eventually that person's going to lose their, their life. So in other words, you see that last phrase, such of verse 8 of chapter 18, such is the place of him who knows not God. So his ultimate claim is, Job, you don't know God. You're not on God's team. God's not like that, really, is, is the idea. All these guys are saying that. All right, so now we get to the exciting one with the three minutes to spare. And last time we did all of these verses with the three minutes to spare. So, so this is the much shorter version. Um, yes, technically. All right, so ch- verse 19, sorry, chapter 19, Job's response. Now, as far as the cycles go, we're halfway through, but this is one of the most critical verses in Job. So it makes sense to stop here. Then we'll pick up next week with the rest of the cycles. So Job is now responding, and one of the most famous statements he makes is in this piece. All right, so the first thing he's going to do, and let's just read my a summary verse here. So even if Job has sinned, the friends don't know what it is. That's what he's trying to argue here, that you don't know what's going on. Uh, God's closed his net about me, but you, you have no idea. Um, let's see. Verse, you see it in verse 4. And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. But you don't have a clue. But yet you're assuming. You're assuming I've done something wrong. So that's his question. Why, why do you assume all of this is God's punishment? There's no reason to assume that. But that's what they're suing, assuming. Now let's jump down to verse 23 and read this. We read this last week, but we did it in such a hurried manner. I want to make sure we, we connect the dots well. So, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, they are, Job. You know, congratulations. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Or maybe they were written on a rock first. This is pretty old. So, we'll, I don't know. But he says this in verse 25, and it seems to come completely out of the blue, as far as Job is concerned, the, the narrative. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, when we say Redeemer, of course, in my translation, it's capital R. We jump immediately to what? 
or in specifically Christ. I mean, we would quote this on a Easter service. My Redeemer lives as opposed to being dead after crucifixion. Now, technically, that's not what Job is talking about here. Um, his Redeemer, have you read, who's read Ruth recently? What was the Redeemer in Ruth? Kinsman Redeemer? That's, that's Boaz in the story of Ruth. Yeah, so well, it's, it's the same word. Kinsman Redeemer, this Redeemer, this is Hebrew is the same. So the idea in, in that story, it's, it's a love story, so there, he's going to marry that girl. But the Redeemer is not necessarily marrying anyone. It's the responsible party who's going to come in and make right this wrong. So it's like, you know, you fill out a, a form for a job or somewhere, and you put, you know, emergency contact. Who, what kind of person are you going to put on that list? Someone you trust that's reliable, and now typ- typically that, that means relative. Just before I got married, I made the mistake, in case of emergency contact, I said, a doctor. <laughs> Is this some kind of trivia thing? I mean, a shaman? What? An astrologer. I mean, Yes, yes, exactly. But uh, but the idea is the, so the kinsman redeemer is that family member. Typically, it's family member who can come in and, and fix this. You know, like kids fall back on parents, or maybe fall back on an aunt, whatever the scenario is. The person you fall back on, and Job's saying, "I've got that," but capital R, that is correct. Uh, he does mean God. My, my Redeemer's alive. And he's not meaning some dude needs, uh, needs to hear about this and show up and fix this. They're, my Redeemer's God. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Well, we could put so much theology in that. Job's not talked about this at all. This just seems to come out of the blue. This Redeemer is going to stand upon the earth at the end. Well, what's Job saying? Now, we, we have a much fuller picture than Testament. What's Job picturing here? This is the resurrection. Well, it's going to be. Yeah. But, but God, he's saying, God's going to show up. My Redeemer is going to come down to earth. Wait, I don't think he has any idea of the fullness of the picture that is to come. He says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Now this is kind of a threat. And who's Job making this threat towards? His friends. And what's the threat? God is on my side, and you guys are—you guys are not. My redeemer is going to show up, and he's going to execute judgment. Now think about that logically. That requires Job to believe in something after death, which is, to be fair, not solidly taught in a lot of passages in the Old Testament, a lot of books. And we have some super clear examples. But there's a lot of this, even in Job so far. I'm just going to go to Sheol. I'm not coming back. Who, who comes back from Sheol? Well, nobody does. Now, so we're getting an underpinning here. He's connected the dots that the only way for God's justice to prove true 
is for something to happen afterwards. And think about it. Did the wicked ever go unpunished in this life? Well, well they would technically say they die, but, you know, it's like, how often do you hear that expression, well, death's too good. You know, they need to suffer first. Or how often did the innocent, from Job's perspective, they never get the reward. They just die. Well, if God's truly just, he's going to have to vindicate that somehow. And he's already got this notion of judgment that requires something to happen at the end. So it's really interesting, the, the progression of thought. That's what I was trying to sell last week. I had to do it really quick, so I don't know if it, if it came across well or not. So it's just filling these blanks. Job knows he has a redeemer. This is one who will vindicate him specifically after death. And this, of course, is connected to the ideas that there will be a judgment. There will definitely be a judgment. Now, it is a few minutes after, so let's uh, run through the practical theodicy at the end. So remember, theodicy, that's why we started the book of Job. And theodicy is just a, a defense of how God can be good and God and, and caring, and yet we suffer. And we spent a lot of time emphasizing that in real life, we're not actually concerned about the high-level theodicy. Uh, we want to know why I'm suffering individually, so local theodicy. And Job is really designed to explain that version of theodicy. Why do you have evil in your life specifically, you, not just in general? And so here's some practical things we can bring from Job so far. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. Job at no point in any way backs down from that. In fact, it's a big deal to him. God, God's doing this. Half of his arguments is that this is God's work. God is the one. He's responsible. He's, he's blaming God for the evil. But not always in a negative way, even though he is mad. It's just more of an attributive way. God did this. God is the one who's made this happen. Um, second, this idea that if we're willing to accept good from God, we must also be willing to accept bad. And really, that's just the definition of loyalty. We will be loyalty regardless of the fruit, which was the claim Satan made against Job in the beginning. He's only serving you because you give him good things, and Job may get mad, but he never quits serving God, so Satan loses. Does that even use the word evil? He uses the word evil, yes. Literally, the word is evil. How should we accept good from God and not accept evil? And third, our suffering is usually not the punishment of God for specific sins. He certainly can, and we have examples of that in the, in the Bible, old and new. But generally speaking, that is not what our suffering is. Um, or we could call it discipline, going back to the book of Hebrews, but that, that's another topic. So our suffering is not usually punishment of God for specific sins. Fourth, our suffering is for the glory of God to be displayed in us. And really, why is Job suffering? To vindicate God. Um, that's really the idea the man born blind and Jesus has asked, you know, well, who sinned? Is it this guy or the parents? And what was Jesus' answer? Neither. 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 Just for me to get glory. Um, that's why I was born blind. So a lot of our suffering is that's the simplistic of an answer you'll get. Somehow, in some way, this is going to manifest God's glory. I, I might not even enjoy it being manifested that way, but in the end, as Paul will tell us, it will be worth it. All right, number five. And we see this because Job does it all, all, all over the place. It's okay to take your complaints to God and to speak honestly from the heart. Job is clearly doing that time and time and time again. Um, God knows what you're thinking anyway. You might as well be forthcoming. In your, admit it to yourself. <laughs> he knows. 
and you're going to get more spiritual growth in that anyway. And last point, all of our suffering will be redeemed in the end. It will matter. Every last pain, every last sorrow, every last moment of heartache, in the end will have contributed to a glory that we can't fathom on this side. All right, any questions? Only seven minutes late. That's not that bad. So uh, I know uh, he's not here. We had this discussion about where Job is and timeline. Yes. The one thing you can't say is, I mean, just from this passage, is there's, it's not as if God says, look at this guy, Abram, or look at any of these other Old Testament people. This is probably before that or in parallel with it, right? Mm -hmm. So these folks, his, his friends, don't have, they're, they're not in a mosaic system. They're not Hebrews. Right, right. They're, in a way, Job is a, a fellow priest of the order of Melchizedek. He's a, yeah, a yeah. God-fearer without lineage. There's mm -hmm, no mm -hmm. you know, right. post-Babel type follower right. or whatever. But his friends, I, I don't know. I don't know. In a, in a way, even though because I just had that thought, he said he's their redeemer. He's their. He's the guy that would be bailing them out. Job is. Yeah. Yeah. And it, he yeah. literally is at the end. Yeah. He has to make the atonement for them because they were found in the wrong. So poor Elihu gets left out of the whole conversation. So I don't know what he's doing. But we'll have that conversation next time. No, but it could be if you thought about it. They're more cultural God followers. Okay. Maybe in their area, people sacrifice to God. They have Hollywood ideas about what Sure, that sure. What's interesting is they all have very monotheistic ideas, which is exclusive to Judaism in that world. So they, and some, and somewhere connected to the idea of monotheism, maybe even from Melchizedek. <laughs> you know, we don't know anything about that guy. So, but. It is interesting, but they have a false version of monotheism, which is what's wrong. That's it's fascinating. This is so early, too. They're working out these things before the Mosaic Covenant is written. This is just mind-blowing if you think about it. One of the oldest narratives we have. I mean, obviously outside of creation. <laughs> you know, but, um, anyway. All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless our reading of Job. Let it be fruitful for our own growth, understanding the, the pains and sufferings we have in life. Let us trust you. Uh, we want to be able to say the Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be your name. And Give us the faith to say that. Give us the courage to say that. And Just let us see in the end a glimpse of the redemption that's coming in a way that will motivate our hearts to be faithful. Um, as we think about the cross, as we think about the glorious resurrection and the hope of that resurrection in the future, God, I pray that you would help us to set our minds on that and walk forward faithfully in this race. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.